Welcome to the High Vibe and Healthy Podcast. My name is Fran Dargaville and I'm a functional nutritionist with a passion for gut health and real food. I'm here to share my take on nutrition and health, answer your questions and chat with leading health and wellness experts and all-round inspiring humans. Enjoy this week's episode and submit your questions at frandargaville.com or via my Instagram, frandargaville. Hello, welcome back to another episode of the High Vibe and Healthy podcast. Today, I've got a really awesome interview for you. I'm chatting all about endometriosis with Emma Berry, an osteopath who not only supports women with endo, but also has personal experience having the condition herself. Endo is super common. It affects around one in nine Aussie women, and it takes on average seven years to get a diagnosis, which is huge. And I think that's why it's really important for us to talk about it, because I know there are many women out there dealing with this condition and often dealing with really debilitating symptoms on a regular basis who aren't aware of it. So I think it's the more we can talk about it, the better so that more people can be aware and pursue a diagnosis if that's what's actually affecting them and what's driving their symptoms. In the episode, we'll be discussing the various symptoms associated with endo and Emma will share her own personal journey with the condition. She shares with us what it was like to get a diagnosis and undergo endosurgery or laparoscopy and the road to recovery. She also shares the tools that have helped her most with overcoming her symptoms. We also chat about osteopathy and how Emma uses it in her clinic to support women with endo in managing their symptoms and improving their overall quality of life. This is a really good episode for you if you have endo or you know someone who has it or you deal with some of these symptoms like painful periods or ovulation pain or pelvic pain and you suspect that you may have it or just to learn a little bit more about it because as I said, it affects so many people. So I think the more of us who know about this condition, the better. So let's get into it. Before we get into the episode, I want to let you know about EstroSwitch from Switch Nutrition. EstroSwitch contains key nutrients to support healthy hormones like broccoli extract, NAC, and zinc, which can help reduce fatigue, improve energy levels, and reduce hormone-related symptoms like PMS and menstrual cramps. It's a game changer for supporting your hormones. Head to Switch Nutrition's website to get your hands on EstroSwitch and use the code HIGHVIBE to get 10% off. Hey, Emma, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat to you. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to having this conversation. It's not something that we've covered a ton on the podcast before, and I think it's very, very important. So for anyone listening who doesn't know, could you share with us a little bit about what endometriosis actually is? Yeah, so it is, it's a condition that it actually affects a lot more women than people probably realize. There's a lot of different symptoms, so like the symptom picture can be quite different, but for a lot of women, it typically presents as pelvic pain and particularly painful periods. And for a long time, it was sort of considered a hormonal disease and it was treated very much purely as a hormonal disease. And so women were often given the pill or like an IUD and that was kind of really it. A lot of the new research is now showing that it's a lot more linked with like inflammation and immune system dysfunction. And so I think when we purely are looking at it as painful periods, which is not what endometriosis is, it's a whole body inflammatory disease. Yeah, I think it sort of changes the way that we approach it and to help with women. Yeah, definitely. So 
Outside of the painful periods and the pelvic pain, what are some of the other symptoms that people might experience if they do have endo? Gut issues is a common one. It's often misdiagnosed as IBS. I think that's probably one of the most common scenarios. So the bloating, food intolerances, they're some of the really common ones that we see. Fatigue is another big one. Things like migraines and headaches is also another common one that's often not associated as sort of a first thought as related to endo. And then some women have issues with fertility. But a lot of the things that I see, particularly in clinic, is, you know, chronic back pain, pelvic pain, hip pain, sort of like vague pain that, you know, doesn't really fit a typical like musculoskeletal pattern is often things that we see as well. Yeah. And a lot of women also have like pain or trouble with exercise, you know, difficulty sleeping. Yeah, there's quite a few. And, and anxiety is also a common one and that's linked with endo as well. So, yeah, there's a lot of different symptoms, which can be why it's often so hard to kind of get a bit of a plan or a diagnosis. Yeah, definitely. And we definitely need to chat about that because I think there are a lot of issues. I'm sure you see this yeah. with your patients as well around diagnosis. And I've seen a lot of people who, for example, they've been to their doctor, maybe they've had a pelvic ultrasound or something like that and being told that they don't have endo, you know, based off that. So what's your thoughts around that? I'm exactly the same. It's such a common scenario I see where I'll, you know, like I'll see someone who's coming in with pelvic pain and, you know, sort of dig deeper and find out they do have digestive issues and, you know, they've got fatigue and all, you know, quite a few other symptoms and, you know, I'll query like have you – you know, has anyone mentioned, you know, potentially could have endometriosis? Have you done any investigation? And, oh, yeah, no, I've had an ultrasound. It's all fine. I don't have endo. And, yeah, I see it all the time too. And I think there's such a lack of understanding, you know, in healthcare, even by practitioners. You know, I, I see it all the time of, you know, just go on the pill, it'll stop the endo. And, yeah, it's, it's very common. It makes sense why, right? Because obviously really the only sort of correct and accurate way to actually diagnose endo is with surgery. And I think from the outset, it can kind of seem like it's a fairly minor surgery in some cases, but it can end up being, you know, quite a substantial procedure depending on the degree of of endo that you do actually have. So it does make sense that not everyone with these symptoms is just getting sent off to get a laparoscopy, right? And I think it's quite daunting as well. Like even if you do think you have it and, you know, signing up to have surgery for something that you may or may not have is really hard, you know, going, okay, I may go through surgery and recovery and they may not actually find anything. And I think that's a big barrier for a lot of people as well. Like what if, or what if I don't have it? And then people start questioning, like, you know, what if I wake up and I don't have it? Like, what does that mean? Like, I think people find, you know, like, does that mean my pain's not real or it's not valid? And I think that's a hard one that I think we often have to navigate as well. And then people, you know, and and like taking time off work because, you know, endo I find can be quite a big financial burden for a lot of people. And then to say to someone, you know, you're going to have to take X amount of weeks off work to recover for something that you may or may not have. And then I think age group as well. Like I see teens and stuff who've got endo and I suppose the advice given there is very variable on who you see as well. But, you know, you don't really want to have surgery if you're a teenager and you're at school. And yeah, so it's a really tricky one to navigate. That is such a good point. And obviously, I mean, I suppose for a lot of people who do have these debilitating pains, for example, you know, very severe period pain, for example, or that, you know, pelvic pain that gives them more of that sort of clear, I guess, connection that that 
could be what's going yeah. on. But then obviously there's some cases like, for example, just unexplained infertility mm. and that makes it even more of a, you know, I guess it's it's everything's really been ruled out and it's really a last sort of port of call for those yeah. people and that's a huge gamble to be taking that risk I suppose for those people to to see whether they have it or not yeah it's it's a it's a tricky one for sure I see that a lot as well like I'll have women who come in and you know they've done multiple rounds of IVF they don't have any pain but then they may have other symptoms that you know I would probably flag as endo like you know persistent bloating you know the gut issues the fatigue and they're like, oh, yeah, but I don't have pain. But, yeah, and I'm sure you probably see it as well. A lot of women will go and have endosurgery and they find out that they've actually got quite, you know, a higher-grade endo. They have the surgery and, you know, their fertility journey is often a lot more successful. But, again, it's a last resort thing. You know, I've seen some women who've gone through IVF four years before anyone's even ever considered that they had endo and then they've had surgery, you know, five years down the track of their IVF journey. It's a yeah. lot. That's huge. Yeah, it's yeah. really huge. It's a lot for anyone to go to go through, you know, IVF or the surgery in itself, you know, as you've said, because especially this kind of surgery compared to anything else, it's such an unknown because it's yeah. for that diagnostic, you don't know what you're going to wake up having, you know, experienced, whether you're going to have lesions removed or what stage you have or what's going on or whether you have it at all. It's it's a very unique yeah. procedure compared to anything else right and from a planning point of view like you know I've, I've had someone who've gone in had surgery and you know five days later they feel pretty normal but then I've had other women who've had stage four endo and their recovery's been five six months so to go into something not knowing what your recovery is going to be like I think is pretty daunting as well yeah that's yeah that's exactly right so could you share with us a little bit about your own journey to getting yeah. diagnosed with endo? My journey was a little bit different to a lot of other people's. I'd probably had period pain since I was about maybe 20, 21, and it would probably only just be a couple of days of really bad pain, but then the rest of the month I was fine, so I didn't really do much about it. It was typical presentation, just take the pill, you know, I had the worst diet ever. I lived off McDonald's and KFC and hot dogs and lollies and just, yeah, terrible diet for a very long time when I was younger. But then as I sort of got to like my mid to late 20s, I started getting a bit of pain more regularly. So, I'd, you know, I'd get a lot of pain leading up to my period for like about the week before. And then I'd be in pretty debilitating pain where I probably couldn't really work for a few days. And then it kind of just got worse and worse to the point I kind of had pain pretty much every day of the month. Yeah, so that was, I think that was sort of in my late 20s where my pain was sort of at its worst but yeah the fatigue was really really bad and that was something that I think is not spoken about enough like you know I I mean pretty much anyone who's got chronic pain gets pretty good at dealing with pain and living with it and sort of getting on with things but yeah the fatigue really got me down as well a lot so I suppose I probably did what a lot of people do is just kind of ignore it ignore it ignore it until you hit rock bottom which is definitely not what I advise my patients to do. So I think for me, there was probably like a lot of shame in my journey, like being in healthcare. And, you know, I treated a lot of people who are in chronic pain. I treated a lot of women who had similar issues and I was helping, you know, the majority of them. But I was then like, you know, why am I, you know, why aren't I responding to anything? Why do I, you know? And I think that was, so I kept a lot of it quite quiet. I didn't really share 
how much I was actually struggling with anyone, not even really people I worked with and until it kind of got to the point that, I mean, I couldn't really function very well. So actually I didn't stop working, but I drastically reduced my hours given I have quite a physical job as well. So yeah, I suppose I probably, I probably didn't seek help until I was at my worst and I was like, I can't live like this. And I think what encouraged me to sort of seek help was I went to I went to like a endo meetup where, you know, there was people speaking about endo, their experiences and like, you know, practitioners sharing their stories, but then also talking to other women who had it. And I think it was the first time in years that I was like, oh my God, I'm not the only person who feels like this. And so I think that's now why I like sharing and creating more awareness around this because it was hearing someone else speak something that I couldn't articulate myself that made me be like, okay, actually... You know, and and she got to the point where she was, you know, it kind of gave me hope, I think. Like she was at the point where she was, you know, maybe having one day a month where she was in pain. And so, yeah, I started working. I reached out to a few practitioners and started working with some women. I did, you know, a nutritionist, an acupuncturist. I, you know, I saw a psychologist. Yeah, I said I changed my work hours around. Yeah, so it was a long journey of a lot of a lot of work. <laughs> you know, I was quite strict with my food and my supplements, which works for some people and not other people. Yeah, and I improved my pain a lot, but I, the fatigue was something that just I couldn't budge. And I was still getting pain probably maybe two weeks of the month. So I ended up having surgery in, I think it was 2019. And I went into surgery probably with the least amount of pain I'd had in about two years, which is opposite to what a lot of people do. But I kind of couldn't shift my fatigue and my exercise intolerance. And so, and we're all kind of at the point that I wanted to know, like from a fertility perspective, you know, where I was at. So that was from my motivation to actually have surgery. And I'm glad I did it. For me, it was a little bit inconclusive in that I had, you know, they, my gynecologist found some inflammatory lesions, but on biopsy, there wasn't really much endo tissue. And I think even as a practitioner, knowing that, that, you know, the amount of pain you have doesn't correlate with the degree of endo. I still, I really struggled with that, even though I knew and I spoke to people about this all the time. I kind of felt like, I don't know, I felt like a bit of a failure around it or had a bit of shame around that whole story. But yeah, I mean, I'm glad I did it. I, I feel so much better since I've had surgery and I probably only really get pain maybe one or two days of the month now and sometimes, you know, one day around ovulation. So yeah, it's been a long journey and probably about a 10, 10, 12 year journey, but. Yeah, that's huge. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. I think that's going to help a lot of people. And I've definitely seen people, you know, I guess that, that put up with things like whether it's, you know, potentially endo related symptoms like very severe period pain, but often these people have been to multiple doctors and just being told, you know, it's just a normal part of, of being a woman yeah. or you're just going through a phase, you know, maybe you're a teenager, take the pill, whatever it is. And no one's ever, you know, very, very often they aren't, you know, maybe hinted at that this could be something that it might be worth exploring. And to yeah. know that for you, looking into all of those tools and getting that support and, you know, then eventually going through with this surgery has provided a lot of you know, relief for you, I guess, to be able to see that. As you said, there's there's no guarantees, you know, there's never any guarantees. And, you know, I personally have a history of chronic fatigue and I have people reaching out to me all the time, like, what did you do? How did you, you know, get better and, and all of that? And I'm like, 
I'm sorry, <laughs> but it's a very slow burn and yeah. you've got to p- learn all these things, you know, shift your n- nutrition, you know, prioritize sleep, move in a way that's, you know, restorative and not going to deplete you further. All of these things that are very boring things that you need to sort of chip away at over time is what, you know, in most cases is is going to get you there. Obviously, in this case, there is, you know, the tool of, of surgery, which for some people can create drastic shifts a lot more quickly. But in a lot of these cases with these, you know, sort of, you know, inflammatory or I suppose, you know, often sort of invisible illnesses and, and those kind of things, it's just chipping away over time and keeping to, you know, keeping on digging and investigating to uncover some of these sort of root cause factors that are driving those symptoms for you, which it's it's never going to be fast. It's never going to be about one particular pill or one particular quick fix. It's about sort of just chipping away and putting one foot in front of the other. And I think that's the thing. I often have people say like, oh, what did you do? What helped you? And I'm like, I did years worth of things and it was an accumulative effect. And I think it depends on like where you are sort of in your journey as to like, like, you know, some people, you know, for me, I was not in a good place mentally when my pain was at its worst. And, you know, for me, it was like, you know, I needed to do some work on that, but I, I was like, it was easier to start with the physical things that I could control to get myself into a better place. And then when, you know, like I sort of was having, you know, an anti-inflammatory diet, I was sleeping better, you know, I was being a bit more social and seeing my friends, like then I could address like the other stuff, the, the you know, mental struggles that went with it. And I think as well, people like we forget about the basics. Like for me, I was really, really sleep deprived when I was at my worst. And you're like, your body's not going to heal when you're in a state of sleep deprivation. So like when people asked me, I was like, sleep, prioritizing my sleep was probably the catalyst for me to change things before any supplement or you know medication or anything so that's sort of what I started with yeah and was it the pain that was impacting your sleep or just the whole sort of weight of everything kind of everything I actually was we had black mold in our bedroom so that definitely had a massive impact on my sleep so I can't remember who it was one of my practitioners just said like you need to move house and if you can't move house you need to move rooms so I literally like shut my bedroom door and slept in the spare room for a couple of months. And yeah, so it was, yeah, it's hard to know, but lots of things. Definitely. Yeah. And <laughs> the mold is a tricky one. I've definitely yeah. had a few clients in that scenario. I've, I've had, had that myself, not too severely in places where I've lived, but for me, you know, being sort of sensitive to that and having genetic sensitivity to mold, if I'm sleeping in a moldy environment, I can see, you know, black and white, my sleep is instantly impacted. So definitely important to look at all of these, these factors and something like mold or other environmental toxins can be a huge root cause factor and, and definitely something to rule out because it's one of the hardest things, obviously, because you have to move house (laughs) or even at the very least do something like, you know, moving rooms, as you said, or, you know, those kind of things. It's, it's really hard, but at the same time, it's, a whole lot easier than all of the other investigation in in you know one sense as well so yeah it's definitely a tricky one but and that's a whole other can of worms but like for me that was I actually think one of my root cause things like once I actually did move house it probably was maybe like a year and a half later but my symptoms changed enormously when I moved house because yeah I mean mold's inflammatory right endo's inflammatory it just adds to everything else 
That's exactly right. You can have, you know, the susceptibility to endo and it's like, you know, you can maybe get away with things to a certain point and then something like that, whether it's, you know, a stressful situation or something like an environmental toxin can just sort of push you over the edge and get you to the point where, you know, these symptoms become much more unbearable for sure. So Emma, could you share with us a little bit about what your experience was like after having the surgery? And I guess how sort of long it took for you to see shifts. So in terms of, you know, perhaps how long did it take for your cycle to return and what were your, you know, cycles like post having the surgery and what was that sort of timeframe in terms of things starting to improve for you? Because I know it's so different for everyone. Some people it's instantly better. Sometimes things are a little bit worse, you know? So yeah, what, what, what was that like for you? Mine again was a little bit of a weird one. So I had my surgery literally, I had it in December. I can't remember what year it was, but it was when we were in lockdown. I think it was 2020. So I had my surgery, maybe it was like five days before we went into like that really harsh lockdown at Christmas time. And so for me, actually, apart from how horrible all of that stuff was, it was a bit of a blessing for me because I definitely would have overdone it for sure. And so I was forced to stay at home for a good, I don't know what it was, like three weeks or something. And so the first week was pretty rough for me. I actually got quite constipated from the pain meds, which made my pain so much worse. And I probably didn't stay on top of that as much as I encourage other people to. So I'm really lucky as well in that my boyfriend's a physio and I kind of was just delegating all these things to him that I wanted him to treat. I was like, I need you to treat my, I need you to treat my neck. I need you to treat my jaw. I need you to treat my ribs. And so like two days post-surgery, I was like, I need you to come over here and release this spot. And it was really good because like I'd kind of seized up because I'd been lying down for so long. So once I got home, probably day two or three, I started doing some really gentle mobility stuff, like literally just lying on the ground just doing like some little pelvic tilts, doing some breathing. I did some really small range like cat-cow movements. So I started moving really early, yeah, probably three days post-surgery. And then I had the kind of, you know, unlikely scenario of having an in-home physio who would treat me whenever I demanded. So that definitely helped my recovery. And I just made sure I got up. I think I was getting up like every hour because the shoulder the shoulder pain that you get post-surgery, like for me, that was probably the most uncomfortable pain that I had in my recovery, which is like for those listening, like it generally settles down within 48 hours. Like that bothered me so much more than anything else. So I was making sure I was getting up and moving, which would help move the gas, take some of that pressure off. And so I was trying to like mobilize my rib cage, release my neck just to help with that kind of pain. And then, yeah, I think I think that's not spoken about enough. Like movement and breathing post-surgery, is it really helps your recovery. And so, yeah, I probably went for my first walk in about a week post-surgery, just a really short walk. I was still really tired, but I wasn't really in too much pain. I just, my tolerance to activity was, you know, I'd wash my hair and I'd need a nap. Probably at about the two-week mark, I started feeling a lot more normal. Yeah, so I started just going for walks every day just doing some gentle lap Pilates stuff at home or yoga kind of stretches. And then I actually didn't go back to work for, yeah, I think I had four weeks off work. And given my job is really quite physical, I that first week back was really, really tough. I probably wish I'd taken five weeks. But, you know, I have a lot of patients who take a week or two off and they're fine. But 
I don't know. It, it depends. Like for me, a big part of it was like where my nervous system was at. Like I'd had a lot of pain for such a long time that my nervous system was quite sensitive, but I also had like a lot of stuff going on in my personal life, which was quite stressful. So I think my body was in quite a heightened state and that's probably why I felt like my recovery, like I was quite sent, you know, other people being like, oh, I wasn't sore for that long. So it's such an individualized recovery. Yeah. But I often say to people like, oh, you know, it's just so much better to take more time off than you think and then go back early if you're feeling good. Cause you know, I'd done all this work, I'd had the surgery. And then if you go back and push yourself too early, you're then kind of going straight back into that cycle of, you know, burnout, putting your nervous system under pressure. So yeah, Mm. it's very variable. And that obviously, aside from that very initial sort of, you know, recovery post-surgery, that first, you know, week or, or couple of weeks, did your pain shift kind of instantly or did that take you know a number of cycles or did that take you know longer what what was that kind of process Um, like my first cycle was pretty painful but I think my first bleed started like day 11 post-surgery so it was pretty rough but the next cycle after that was actually okay it was I was kind of a bit terrified for it given how the one before had been because I'd sort of been bleeding post-surgically anyway and then, yeah, day 10 or day 11 it was. It was a pretty rough time to get your first period. Mm. But, yeah, the one after that was actually okay. It, was, it wasn't It was great, but it wasn't any worse than it had been. So I think maybe two or three, the first two or three cycles were pretty painful, but not any worse than I was used to. But, yeah, probably maybe my four cycles when I was like, oh, like I actually feel okay. Like I've got pain, but I can function. I can, you know, still hold a conversation. I can go to work. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's huge and, and good to know because, mm. you know, yeah, as we we're sort of saying, it's so different for everyone and, and you never know. And I think that is really good advice to just, if you can, allow yourself more time and if you don't need it, mm. that's fine, but at least be prepared that because I think, you know, if you put that in your difficult, put yourself in that difficult situation of only having a week or two weeks and then it turns out that you do need much more than that, then you're not in the space to be even juggling that to try and make that happen. You really just need to be resting. And and obviously not everyone is in the position to be able to do that if they have kids or, you know, they're not able to get that time off work. But if you can, Mm. that's very good advice. And I think that's really important to do that. Yeah. And even like, you know, I think back, like, you know, maybe I would have scattered my return a little bit more, like maybe I would have gone back three days and then, and then the next week gone back five days, so maybe done a slightly shorter day. And, you know, obviously I'm in health, like I'm an osteopath, I can actually kind of dictate my own hours. And I know a lot of people don't have that flexibility or luxury. So yeah, I do know that that's not necessarily common scenario, but I know a lot of people work from home now since COVID. And I know that probably makes it easier. And I'm, I don't know if you see this, but I have a lot of women in clinics say like, it's so much better that I can work from home now for my period because I can wear tracky pants or I can have a heat pack or I can turn my camera off and do a stretch or, you know, yeah, that's probably one 100%. positive that I think has come out of, you know, from working from home. Yeah I, yeah, I completely agree. And I think just to have that flexibility and for people to still be able to do their work instead of, you know, if they are able to, instead of using all of their sick leave, but be able to do it in a way that is more yeah. comfortable and using, you know, heat and yeah, just being comfy and being in your own space and, yeah. um, and all of that, I think can be such a, a game changer. One thing I really want to quickly say about post-surgery was, and I see it with women after childbirth as well, like they're like, oh no, I'm okay. I don't need the medication or I don't want to take pain medication. 
it's so much easier to stay on top of your pain if you take like when you start to get pain or start to feel like you know your pain spiking taking the medication then not waiting until you get bad because it's really hard to bring it like have an effect on pain when it's at that point and that's relevant post-surgically but it's also relevant when you've got your period or pain through the month is like take it when you start to feel it come on because then actually in the end you actually end up probably taking less pain medication because you're settling before it spikes. Yeah, that is, that's a really, really good point. And also if you need that, you know, of course, Mm. to know that there's nothing wrong with you and it's okay to do that. Sometimes you really just do need medication. And I know as someone, you know, obviously in the natural health space and a lot of my clients are really prioritize their health and wellness. So when they do have to take, you know, any form of medication or pain relief or anything like that, often we can feel a little bit guilty about it. But if you need it, you know, it's okay. You've just got to do what you got to do to help yourself, you know, feel okay. I definitely was guilty like that for ages. My boyfriend would be like, just take it. I'm like, no, I'm not that bad yet. And it's like, and I see it with most people as well. But like what I often say to people is like, I get it. I used to hate even taking Panadol, but you know, what does like the stress that you being in like excruciating pain, like I know I'd be like in a ball in the bottom of the shower, like vomiting, you know, not sleeping, not eating for like, you know, two days. What does that stress do to your body? Like that's a lot of stress on your body versus two pain pills. But, you know, in the long run, if you think like I, a lot of what I do with endo management is like working with the nervous system. So if you're getting to that state where you're just like debilitated, that's so much more pressure on your body. Yeah, I completely, completely agree. I think that is, that's such a good point. And the things that we spoke about that are the more sort of foundational pieces, the sleep, the nutrition, those kind of things, generally speaking, it takes time with those things. It's going to take a number of cycles to start to see shifts and then more beyond that to see some, you know, big shifts in terms of all of this. And then obviously for some people, they, you know, it it might require something like surgery to actually see much of a shift Mm. and the diet and lifestyle pieces don't necessarily influence that as much. So while you do those things and make those shifts over time, you know, obviously know that the changes in your symptoms, you know, as a result of that do take time. So in the interim, you obviously may need some of these other things to get you through. And, And as you said, it it can be the better choice for you mm. if it means you sleep, if it means you're not, you know, so like stressed and, you know, taxing your nervous system so much. So that's really helpful. Yeah. So I'm guessing there's going to be some people listening that maybe have never heard of an osteopath before or they don't actually know what you do. So could you share with us a little bit about what you actually do and how you help people and also more specifically how you support people with endometriosis. Yeah, so osteopaths are allied health practitioners. It's a manual therapy, but I like osteopathy is quite holistic and so I like to think that we generally look at the whole body and not just from a physical point of view, like we take into account lifestyle and emotional health and so we look at the person as a whole rather than just focus on an area that's sore. There is actually quite a bit of variation between osteopaths and how they practice. So I know myself, I treat you know, patient to patient, how I treat can vary a lot. So I like to treat everyone quite individual and sort of meet them where they're at. So some people, you know, I might do some firmer techniques. I might do some like soft tissue massage, some stretching, dry needling. And then other people, if they're quite pain, you know, quite sensitive and in a lot of pain, I'll do some more gentle like myofascial release techniques. So it really depends what someone's coming in for. But one of the key principles 
that of osteo is that the body is a unit and how the body functions is directly interconnected with its structure. So, you know, we don't look at one system individually. We sort of look at how they all function together. So, you know, if someone comes in to see me, you know, I'm not just interested in the musculoskeletal system. I want to know, you know, how's the nervous system, how's the lymphatic system, you know, how's the blood flow to that area, you know, more than just looking at, you know, this is a tight spot and how it all links together. But, yeah, in terms of what I see with a lot of my clients, with endo, like, for me, the majority of people are coming to see me for pain. That's probably the biggest presentation. Like I know for you, you're probably seeing a lot of that other stuff, you know, fatigue, fertility, but yeah, pain is the main presenting factor for me. And so something that I think has a really big influence and that I look at a lot is obviously the pelvis. So all your abdominal and pelvic organs sort of sit within that pelvic bowl or that cavity of your abdominal. And so I often am looking at how does someone breathe? So your diaphragm muscle, which is your breathing muscle and your pelvic floor are directly linked and all your organs sort of sit between those two structures. And there's a lot of, you know, heaps of other things in there as well. But yeah, rather than just looking at one thing, we're looking at sort of the whole area. But something I see a lot is I have women come and see me and they're really worried about like this new pain that they may have or they have pain in a different area and they're like, oh, my endo must be worse or, you know, I might have, you know, obviously got some more endo lesions growing and and it doesn't necessarily, that's probably one of the biggest misconceptions I see with people who have pain. Not all pain is from endo. Like, you know, there can be inflammation that obviously drives pain, but what I'm looking at is like the compensations that are a result of pain. So pretty much every woman I'm seeing who's got endo has some sort of pelvic floor dysfunction and they've normally got tightness, which often can bring on a lot of pain for women. And it's it's a bit of a protective, you know, guarding response. You know, if you're in if you've got pain all the time and your body's, you know, constantly feels like it's under threat, every like the nervous system's role in response to pain, it tightens up all the muscles around the area. So that can be the hips, the back, the abdominal muscles, the pelvic floor muscles. So we sort of look at that as a whole picture. And I'm guessing that just makes the pain worse probably. Yeah. So if a muscle's tight, it limits, you know, for a healthy, you know, we want, you know, blood flow to easily come in to bring oxygen and nutrients and then, you know, to remove any toxins and, you know, from that area. So if a muscle's really tight, you're limiting the blood flow, the lymphatic flow, and all that can lead to sort of stagnation and congestion. So yeah, that's, you know, we want healthy blood flow and good movement and yeah, the muscles need to be able to lengthen and soften as well as contract. Yeah, I love that. And from what you've said and also what you mentioned before in terms of the sort of practitioners that have helped you with something like endometriosis, it's so helpful to have this care team. I think we often think of, say, for example, with our health, it's just, you know, us and then maybe our doctor, our GP, or, you know, if we have some sort of condition, maybe there's a specialist involved as well. But as you sort of, you know, alluded to with these chronic conditions, obviously, you know, there's an expense to that and it's not going to be accessible for everyone. But if you're able to, you know, having these different practitioners, you know, the osteo that can support you in the ways that you've just mentioned, you know, if you need nutritional support, 
if you need, you know, a psychologist to to support you, you know, knowing that you can't get everything from your doctor or from even, you know, one practitioner really. And it's having this care team of people to support you when you have a chronic health condition is really, really important and can be an absolute game changer. Yeah. I think that's one of the you know, main things I say to people is like, find a care to, you know, find a team, you know, find someone who actually listens to you. And if, you know, if you don't feel heard or you don't feel, you know, get a second opinion and see someone else. But I think, you know, I'm really lucky in that I have a really great referral network of practitioners who like, you know, practitioners like yourself. I also work a lot with like acupuncturists, psychologists, gynecologists. And as you said, it is a financial burden for a lot of people. And, you know, you don't necessarily need to be seeing all those people at the same time, but I think it's important, you know, like if you're in a really big pain flare, then yeah, you might want a few more manual therapies to really settle your pain. And then, you know, and then sometimes, you know, I have people that are maybe I check in with once every six or eight weeks when everything's going well. And then, you know, they may be focusing on a bit more with their nutrition and supplements. And then, yeah. And I just think, you know, working with practitioners who are able to communicate with each other is really important too. Yeah, definitely. I completely agree. I I think that's just, yeah, so important to get those people to support you. And as you said, it it may change with time who you need support from, but just to know that you you can't get all of that from from one practitioner and uh, yeah, having these people on hand, even if it's just sort of as needed can be really, really helpful. Mm. So as someone with endo, what do you wish other people knew about what it's like to have this condition? Yeah, it's a hard question. It is always such a hard one to explain. I don't know. I think I think the thing that really I struggled with when my pain was really bad was, you know, one minute you can be in absolutely like debilitating pain where you can't even hold a conversation. And then like an hour later, you may actually feel okay. And I think that's really confusing for people around you to be like, well, you know, you were fine before or you weren't fine before. Like, how are you fine now? And I think that was something I really struggled with. Yeah, I know when my pain was at my worst, I felt like I was really flaky in terms of like my work and my friendships and the unpredictability of it was something I struggled with a lot and felt like I was letting people down. And I definitely know that that's a common theme that I hear from women is like, I feel like I'm letting people down or I feel like I'm a burden to those around me. Yeah, I think that's it. But I I think something that I think sharing my story or hearing other people's story was like hope. Like I know my pain was really bad. I'm like, oh my God, this is going to be my pain forever, which is not a great place to be and it's not a conducive place to heal from either. But yeah, like, you know, talk to other people and, you know, most people around you actually care and want to help. And I think a lot of us try and do it all on our own or keep it in because we don't want to be a burden. I think that's, yeah. Like, you know, if, if the people you're working with now, or like if you've seen a doctor who's just said, you know, it's just part of being a woman or it's just pure pain, like go and get another opinion. Like you're entitled to see as many people as you need and advocate for yourself until you kind of feel like you're heard and supported. Yeah. I love that. Such, such good advice. And I think, yeah, as, as you said, you know, people don't know what you're going through. So you don't have to communicate that to everyone, but, you know, sometimes that might be appropriate and it might benefit you to do that. And I know it's so tricky with things like endo and, you know, for myself with the chronic fatigue, because I look just fine. I look yeah. perfectly healthy. No one would know what was going on, you know, underneath the surface. So sometimes you just 
have to communicate that and because otherwise people won't know and not everyone's going to understand you know some people will still think oh she's just tired or oh you just have period pain and they don't actually understand the extent of that and that's you know it is what it is yeah it's a tricky one for anyone who might be dealing with endo or suspects that they may have it have you got any advice for them maybe something that they can you know start to consider whether it is around building a, a care team or just sort of you know the mindset sort of approach to things what what sort of thoughts do you have around that there's some, something that I think is definitely not spoken about enough is the role of the pelvic floor on pain. It was something that surprises a lot of people and I think it's often an avenue that's not really explored a lot. You know, a lot of people will go down the route of like contraception or pain medication and they will, you know, take supplements and nutrition. But I think like the physical aspects are probably not spoken about enough. So, yeah, pelvic floor and moving your body are the two things I think aren't spoken about enough. There's a lot of fear around movement. Like I, I hear women say, oh, I tried, I know, I tried to do Pilates once and it flared me out really bad and I, you know, I'm never going to do Pilates again. But what I often say to people is it, it's not necessarily that activity that flared you up. It's like maybe it was the wrong time in the month to have tried a new activity. Like, you know, don't try a new activity the week before your period. You know, try it in what is your best week of the month and or you know I think we don't necessarily need to do a class like go for a short walk or if you're in a lot of pain you can't walk like just lie on the floor and do some stretches like or you know go for a swim some low impact stuff I think that's an area that's not tapped into enough is the power of exercise and how exercise can help modulate pain if it's done well you know and I have a lot of people who are in pain and go oh well I used to be a elite level level netball player I'm like well your body's not at that point now but can we find something that you can tolerate and something you can do because most people can always find something to do and you know it may just be for a short period of time but moving the body and doing movements that don't exacerbate pain creates that level of safety in your body of like oh actually I can do that and it doesn't set off my pain and then building up I think that's yeah I, I hear a lot of them go oh no I can't do that that'll make my pain worse so that's something I'm really passionate about working with people, you know, trying to like, what can we get you to do that you can tolerate and build on that? And then the other thing that I was wanting to talk about was the pelvic floor. And I see such, so many symptoms that people just put down to endo that actually are just compensatory factors from being in pain. So spasm in your pelvic floor often is a really big probably one of the main contributors of like chronic back pain and chronic pelvic pain. And I'm not going to share too much information about it, but I had a patient this week who had had constant low back and hip pain for two and a half years. And she tried lots of different things and hadn't had any relief. And we treated her pelvic floor this week. And she's like, this is the first week in two and a half years that I haven't had any hip pain. So she still had some back pain, but it had like significantly reduced, but you know, stuff like that that we just straight away put down to endo. I don't think that stuff's explored enough. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. And obviously we're just scraping the surface, but I think even just having this awareness means that people can start to go and investigate further. And it's a very new area for a lot of people, probably not for you as an osteopath, (laughs) but, you know, I've been seeing more people speaking about this, you know, experts sharing online, you're sharing a lot of stuff on you know instagram stories for example about all of this and you know as a nutritionist i know lots about holistic health in general but this is an area that i personally hardly Mm. know anything about and i think to your point i think that's so helpful and just 
to bring people's awareness to these different things that may actually make a huge impact yeah. in their symptoms and their quality of life is is really important. And then to find someone like Emma who can help you, or if you don't have anyone nearby, at least maybe start to find some of these, you know, great people, make sure they're reputable that are sharing things, you know, on Instagram and just to get, you know, to learn more and, and learn how that can, you know, maybe have an impact with your symptoms. And I think something as well that I see a lot is the timing of when people do things. So like what I was saying about exercise, like, you know, maybe you're just not doing the right exercise at the right time of the month. And, and even I see that with treatment, you know, for myself, I, I still try and get regular treatment to sort of stay on top of things. And I try and book my treatment in for myself the week before my period, you know, to get my hips released, my pelvic floor released, you know, get some work done through my abdominal cavity just to give my, the body, you know, take as much unnecessary tension out of the area so that when my period comes, there's not these additional factors. So removing the things that I can control yeah, I think that's, and you know, and I know a lot of women as well who do acupuncture, they often will time their acupuncture maybe around ovulation if they get ovulation pain and then a few days before their period. So, you know, I've heard some people go, oh, I tried this and it didn't work. And I was like, well, maybe you tried it at the wrong time. And, and a lot of it can be trial and error of, you know, and I often will do that with my clients. Like I might have some women who've got endo, but they only really get ovulation pain. So we try and treat them right before ovulation and that can have a really big improvement on their pain levels. Yeah, that's, that's such a good point. And it is a little bit tricky because it is constantly that experimentation Mm. of, you know, it's like with maybe exercise, maybe sometimes, oh, you know, you overdid it a little bit and you hurt your back or you were just exhausted afterwards and that you're getting that feedback that that wasn't quite the right thing, but it doesn't mean that the exercise wasn't the right thing. Maybe it was, you know, not the right time in your cycle or you just didn't warm up warm up enough beforehand or you were having a stressful week and you didn't do that you know you didn't get that recovery that you needed that's that's exactly Mm. right so I think that's a really good point and we're always changing and we're always in flux so we just want to take that feedback all the time and experiment and you know obviously starting slow with things and and working up and building up to that you know over time can be a good way to not you know overdo things too much so maybe it is the you know at home 10 minute mat pilates that you start with instead of going to you know a like crazy 75 minute class at your Mm. local studio that might you know might be a little bit much for you and yeah and i think that's something else as well that i've seen with people and and i know i know i did it myself even when i knew all of this stuff my mind still would go to the negative of like i do i don't i do something whether it was eat something or do a certain activity and it would flare me up and i'd go into this spiral of like oh shit why did i do that and i'd you know, kind of ruminate on it, but then that doesn't, that doesn't fix anything. And, and so I'd, you know, often I say to my clients, it's like, your pain will settle. Have you ever had a flare that doesn't settle? And, you know, yeah, your pain may not go to zero, but it always comes back down at some point. And so often I find if you're kind of at a really low point, you may have a flare and you may have pain that maybe flares for a week. But then as you do all this other stuff that's improving, you might have a flare and you might have a flare for like a day or two. And so like coming back to reminding yourself of like, okay, I've, maybe I've done too much, but this will settle in a day or two. Uh, I, that really helped me. And as I said, even knowing this stuff and how pain works, I would still sometimes go to the negative. And so I would say to my partner, when I have a flare up or when I'm in like, I don't know, I feel like things have spiraled. Can you remind me that it will settle in two days or it'll settle in a day? And just hearing it from someone else 
<laughs> Would let myself. Were you like? <laughs> Piss off. off in the moment, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> oh but. gosh, no, I like that. Mm. Yeah, that's su- that's such a good point. That's a really good point. And just to know with all of that, like you said, with if you overdo the exercise or eat something random or whatever, no one's perfect 100% no. of the time. And we, we can often get that sort of perception and really beat ourselves up. And I've definitely been there as well. But just to know, you know, it happens. We're always changing. And, you know, as you said, this too shall pass. I think that's a really helpful reminder mm. for sure. So what's something that people might not know or might not expect about the pelvic floor? Something that I treat a lot of and I'm really passionate about is the influence that the jaw has on your pelvic floor. And it's something that kind of surprises a lot of people, but there's a really direct link between what's happening in your jaw versus what's happening in your pelvic floor. Both of these areas are areas that we tend to hold stress and tension. So think of like when you're scared or nervous or anxious, like what's one of the first things we do is like we clench our shoulders and tense our our jaw. And in response to pain, often I see people will subconsciously hold a lot of tension in their jaw, whether that's grinding or clenching. And often that's done at night. So a lot of people aren't even aware that they do it. But there's so many reasons that they're connected, which I won't go in today because it's quite complex. But like that's an area that I think when we look at that, it can have a really big influence on pelvic pain and sort of getting to the bottom of like, you know, why is someone clenching or grinding? And I work a lot with like holistic dentists. Um, and if you sort of, you know, the role that breathing has on your pelvic floor and pain and movement of like the lymphatics through from the pelvic, you know, clearing any congestion, if our jaw is dysfunctional, it also affects our breathing. So, Again, it's not the first referral kind of I will send someone for, but if they've looked at lots of things and they're still just having trouble, like addressing jaw dysfunction. And for some people that means getting like a splint or doing you know some self-release to their jaw before they go to sleep at night has a really big role. And often I get people to, if you just clench your jaw now, feel, like try and feel what happens in your pelvis, like it, it, you often get like a little bit of a lift or a little bit of a tense through your pelvic floor muscles. So that's another way that we can influence that area without actually having to directly touch it as well. Yeah. And I think it's really good having this holistic perspective because probably if you go to, you know, a bit of an old school dentist or someone who hasn't done a lot of research, it'll be, yeah, just give you yeah a night guard or something like that. And that's it. Yeah. I'm not going to investigate any further, but I think having that understanding and being able to explore these different avenues. And also I think that's why it's helpful to have these, you know, holistic practitioners, whether it's someone like you or, um, you know, functional sort of practitioner that does have a good sense of some of these other potential, you know, connections and root cause, root causes so that we can sort of refer you to, you know, the appropriate sort of practitioners to help you with these sort of different things instead of just treating everything in a silo, which is how things are so often done. Yeah. And everything's, I feel like a lot of time, everything's just so segmented in the body, but you know, from a fascial perspective, every single part of our body is connected from head to toe by a fascia, you know, from the muscular system, skeletal system, it wraps around all our organs. When you when you actually see what fascia looks like, you can't separate the body. You know, it's it's one whole direct connection. Yeah, I love that. Super helpful. So Emma, that was absolutely amazing. I have really, really loved this conversation. Where can people find you, learn more from you, follow along with you? I love following your Instagram. I think that's, you know, it's 
super, super helpful. And I'm definitely learning things all the time from there. So yes, let us know awesome. your, your links. <laughs> well, I'm based in Sydney. So as an osteopath, I practice on the northern beaches. I have just this year started doing online consultations for people who aren't based in Sydney. As we were sort of saying before, having like that referral team, but addressing some of that you know, even from an online perspective is, you know, educating people about movement, teaching them, you know, ways that they can release their body at home. Yeah, that's something that I'm quite passionate about. But, you know, if you do live in an area that's not around here and, you know, you're not quite sure who to see, like I have people message me a lot and just saying like, I don't know where to start. And so I'm always happy for people to reach out to me, you know, with that kind of question, because I'm from Melbourne, you know, I've got you know, I've got quite a few colleagues who work up around Gold Coast areas. And if I don't know people in certain areas, I, you know, I have a great online community where I can just post a question and be like, hey, is there any good practitioners who work in women's health here? So always happy for people to reach out and ask questions. Yeah, I love that. And yeah, I think as we were sort of saying as well, you know, I, I've got a lot of clients who live in rural areas and just they don't have access to a nutritionist, let alone, mm. let alone someone specializing in gut health, for example, let alone an osteopath. So yeah, I think that's, that's helpful. And your Instagram handle. Oh, it might, yeah, it's quite long. It's spirit of indigo <laughs> underscore health. And so I share a lot of things. I don't just share endo stuff. I work a lot with women during pregnancy and postpartum, but I feel like a lot of a lot of the things overlap in terms of like, you know, how we how we treat our body and how, you know, I find a lot of women postpartum as well get that similar kind of frustration of like my body doesn't do what I want it to do anymore. Yeah, so I share about quite a few different things. Mm-hmm. Yes, so everyone go and check out Emma <laughs> on Instagram. If you're looking for support with Endo, definitely reach out to her and I'll pop all those links in the show notes so you don't have to remember it. <laughs> One one thing I did want to say was as an osteo, we aren't traditionally known for doing pelvic floor therapy. Like I, I was really lucky to be one of the first, one of the first groups in Australia that went through the pelvic floor training with some osteos in Melbourne, actually. So in Sydney, I'm probably, I think I'm one of two people who does the internal pelvic floor work. So generally I often encourage people to, you know, find a practitioner who specialize in pelvic floor. Generally, it is probably a women's health physio. They're like typically that's really just been who's done the internal pelvic floor work. But what I often say to people, you know, a lot of people find that, you know, that they may not be comfortable with that. And and I think something that has really worked to my advantage is that I've treated women with pelvic pain for a very long time and I had to do it in a way that was external and find out ways that we could influence the pelvic floor without actually directly being able to be on it. So there's so many ways that you can influence the pelvic floor without actually having to do an internal assessment if that was something that you weren't comfortable with yet. But it also sort of encourages people of, hey, there's things I can do myself and I think that's quite empowering rather than being like I need someone else you know, you, you know, get someone to do an assessment and tell you where you're at, but then you can do some stuff at home by influencing that area externally. Yeah, a hundred percent. And that's, you know, as we've spoken about with all the lifestyle and the movement and those kind of things, while going to see someone to get treatment can have a huge impact is also those things that you do every day that just yeah. shift things so much. So it's all, it's all sort of important and beneficial. And if you yeah. don't have access to that, there are all of those other things that we, we mentioned that can be really powerful in, you know, reducing these symptoms, managing those symptoms as well. Yeah. 
Thank you so much, Emma. This has been absolutely awesome. We'll definitely have to have you on again and maybe we can chat more about some of these other things we've spoken about. But thank you so much. No, thank you for having me. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the High Vibe and Healthy podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to chat with me about how we can work together to reach your health goals, head to frandargaville.com. To connect with me day to day, Instagram is the place to be. Follow me via my handle at Fran Dargaville. And finally, please note that the materials and content within this podcast are intended as general information only and are not considered to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. <laughs>